This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Demystifying Food from Farm to Fork. And the author is Maurice Haladic. And Maurice joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Maurice. Yes, good morning. How are you today? Well, this is going to be bottom line discussion about something we take so for granted, obviously our food. We go to the grocery store. Most of us don't think about how where it comes from. <laughs> I think maybe kids today just think it comes from the grocery store. I don't know. <laughs> but you have some uh you have a great uh, background in the agricultural industry and and uh, you examine a plethora of issues surrounding the food industry, and you answer questions of what is food, what does farm to market really mean, and and whether the food we eat is safe. You you talk about some controversies and e- socioeconomic concerns surrounding food and the food supply, you know, the role of government, uh, you know, the family farm, organic foods, uh, weather, climate, animal and poultry welfare. So it's very comprehensive here. Uh, what was the uh, motivation, Maurice, to uh, publish your book? Well, in my wife's circle of friends, there is a food nutritionist and a medical doctor. And yes, they know a lot about food. And somehow they extrapolated their knowledge about the nutritional side of food and the food that you see in the grocery stores to the farm. And they basically were totally of the opinion that everything is not working out there. The food is unsafe. It's um, you know, all of the uh, concerns that we so often hear were being expressed by these people. And I was getting into very heated discussions with them until finally one day my wife says, just park it with them, and if you need to get it out of your system, just write it down. And uh, one thing led to another, and this was two years ago, and uh, uh, a book resulted. So what would you, I guess, how would you define food? What is food? I mean, that sounds pretty basic, but one of your chapters says, what is food? Well, the food is to uh, the average consumer is what they eat. But to a farmer, it's something different. To a gourmet uh, uh, in a fancy French restaurant, it's uh, maybe somewhat different. And everyone has a different perspective on what food is for their own nutrition or where it comes from, and uh, yes, I was able to prepare a whole chapter on uh, the various uh, definitions of food, so to speak, depending on the individual. Is our food safe? By and large, it's very safe. Um, Obviously, when it's not safe, there is um, uh, inspectors, etc., out there, and it becomes very public knowledge, and it makes newspapers very well, but um, the number of deaths related to foodborne illness is about as many as are killed a year. Uh, the number of deaths per year that under those circumstances is about three weeks deaths on the highway. So you eat more often than you drive probably. So comparing to driving and other activities, it's uh, a lot safer. Even climbing stairs is more dangerous than eating our food. Now we all know this country was well, just grew up on uh, the, the backs of farmers and the family farm. and But we hear a lot of news reports that the family farm is disappearing, corporate farming is taking over, and, and woe is America. Yes. It's interesting. I don't know where people get that idea because I simply look into the uh, U.S. Uh, national census statistics, which are about as reliable and public as you can find, and the number of family farms has barely moved in the last 10 years. Uh, the number of corporate farms has not changed very much. And indeed, one farm out of 200 is a corporate farm, and family farms produce 85% of the food. The rural population is not in decline. And one interesting statistic is the number of women managing farms is actually increasing quite dramatically. 
What about the role of government in farming? What, what kind of relationship uh, do you see it should have? Well, one, one of the prime things that everybody forgets, a government is really responsible to ensure that there is an adequate food supply in, um, uh, in the nation for anybody who's got a speck of prosperity. Yes, there are food-stressed individuals, but people forget that a productive agricultural sector is essential for uh, a stable, a prosperous country. And thank goodness, Canada, the United States, it's not even a second thought that if it ever became an issue, wow, that would just, just really devastate the whole population. So that's number one thing the government has concerned about, stable food supply. Then, of course, uh, food safety is uh, an important second, uh, second factor. Tell us about organic food. We see uh, a growing uh, amount of space in the f- supermarkets with organic food, and, and it seems like more and more people are buying it. It's, it's a perfectly wonderful um, uh, outlet for the elites, but it should be pointed out that a little over half of 1% of the U.S. productive land is, is dedicated to organic foods. And secondly, the oversight it's all in an honor system, and when you really look into USDA statistics, there's nobody being caught up for any uh, uh, inappropriate farming um, farming practices, and the uh, profitability of organic farming is, of course, quite high compared to conventional farming. So it, it's complex, but I really think that it's a buyer beware uh, type of a food product. So you might think you're buying something organic, uh, no artificial fertilizers or anything, but it may not be. It easily could be uh, not exactly as illustrated. Right. Well, you have over 30 chapters, very comprehensive book on farming. Uh, how important it is for, for all of us to learn how to grow a garden? Well, I think as an outlet, as a hobby, uh, it brings you fresh air, it brings you close to nature, and it does give you some wonderful fresh fruits and vegetables. But I have a chapter on my woes about really feeding the family. So as a nice outlet, a nice hobby, it's great. But as far as an important food strategy on food security, I think it's perhaps overrated. You also have a chapter on animal protein. You say too much of a good thing. You ask the question. Yes, because um, the of the prosperous people in North America now in China, because they're prosperous, they can eat as much meat as they feel like. And there's all sorts of medical evidence that too much meat is just not good for you. I, I'm, I'm not we. I eat meat around home all the time. But excessive quantities um, is not a, um, a good diet strategy. Now, we hear much about livestock production, the use of hormones, antibiotics, and the effect it has on all those who uh, consume the, uh, the meat from those kinds of livestock. Now, how big of a problem is this? Well, I'm very concerned about the use of antibiotics as simply a preventative measure. Certainly, if the animal is sick, such as a human, apply antibiotics or you save suffering and, and all those kind of things. But uh, the problem with feeding antibiotics all the time is that the, the bacteria, the, the, the germs, so to speak, become resistant. And a lot of those germs affect humans as well, and they're just destroying the effectiveness of the um, antibiotics. And on hormone treatment, um, there's um, no need in dairy cattle. Jury's a bit out on beef. I'm, I'm a little bit, um, I'm negative on that side of things as well. So my, my book isn't all about just, yeah, whatever's happening in agriculture today, it's, it's good. I do cover both sides of the kind of the good, bad, and the ugly, so to speak. What about genetically modified food? Oh, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the elites, again, don't necessarily want to eat it, and that is their privilege, but... You know, just take um, rice, for example. Um, they have spliced the genes of the daffodil into rice and uh, enhanced its vitamin content very substantially, and thus there's a million children a year uh, in third-world countries eating this rice who would otherwise be blind. 
and an increased yields, reduced uh, use of fertilizer per bushel produced. All of these things um, are um, are possible because of genetically modified uh, corn, uh, soybean, canola, and what have you. Now, you have a chapter on backyard egg production, and you talk about the pros and the cons. Okay. The pros are, hey, it's kind of fun to have your mini farm, uh, and the cons are it's expensive, uh, it's, uh, it's livestock that you've got to take care of all the time, and uh, the productive uh, life, of, um, life of a chicken is about a year, but they'll live three years. What do you do when Henny Penny is no longer laying eggs? Uh, she's not a pet. Uh, you take her to a vet and put her quietly away. It's against the law in most jurisdictions to dispose of them yourself. Um, it's it's the, the chapter is there to read. If you really want to do it, I think it's a fun thing. I was going to do it myself, but you should be aware of all the the pitfalls. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a magnet for rats and mice and what have you. Now you have some myth busters, as you call it, food myth busters. Uh, give us some of those. Give us an example of some of those myths that you're busting. Okay, one of the the, the um, things is that people are of the opinion that the food industry is 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 not serving us well. Well, I maintain that the food industry is serving what the consumer wants, and this. This response to supply and demand. For example, a bushel of wheat, which is 60 pounds, will produce 90 loaves of whole wheat bread or 60 pounds of white uh, bread using bleached white flour. And the nutritional difference is huge. I've got charts in my book on that. And, and, the, and the point is that if we were to use whole wheat as a standard food, the food miles, the, the nutrition per acre and everything would shoot up astronomically. Uh, another myth is on food miles. You can take a ton of oranges up from Florida in a train using about two gallons of diesel fuel. And um, a two gallons of fuel will drive a car about 40 miles. You work through the numbers and to drive a car a mile will feed a family with all the oranges they want for two years. So in, in, in many cases, food miles are totally over, um, you know, overstressed, so to speak. Now, what about modern farming practices? Uh, some often are critical uh, of concerning them and that uh, they're not serving us well. Well, I think the biggest breakthrough in grain crops and, and field crops is the ability to p- plant no-till, which is simply putting the seed right in the ground again into last year's uh, residue. They do not plow the land, they just put it back in, and that is very much thanks to advanced weed control, whereby they previously, particularly for perennial grasses and weeds, they had to heavily uh, till the soil every every year. Now. Um, there's less water erosion, there's less wind erosion, and there are less um, uh, less fuel required. And that is just one of the recent advances in farming that's making a huge um, huge difference to the environment and to the um, and to the amount of inputs required. And what do you think about fish farming? Okay, uh, what I really feel strongly about is our oceans are being depleted. If we want to, um, if we want to maintain fish in our diet, I see no option except fish farming. Now there are freshwater fish that do not eat protein, but they just eat plants. That does that's a that's a good combination. On um, ocean uh, farm fish, such as salmon, there are issues on pollution. There are issues on parasites, but even here there are best practices coming along. Where, for example, they might tow the pens very, very slowly, and so there's no buildup of, um, of parasites or, um, or various pollutants. Some are very critical of ethanol production from corn. Uh, you have uh, a different view. Well, I think this is like, like, like money in the bank. 
the U.S. Um, uh, corn industry normally has a carryover of 1 to 2 billion bushels. And this is just typical. That's how you should go from one year to the next. Don't run out of, out of, out of the whatever grain. Uh, so there must, there's no shortage of corn right now. But the, the thanks to the ethanol industry, the uh, U.S. corn production has shot up about 4 billion bushels. So the same amount of corn going into human food or livestock or whatever as before. But there's this 4 billion uh, bushel uh, quantity of corn, which would feed the whole world for, for, for many, many days. If there becomes a natural food disaster out there, uh, obviously the, the corn will just be diverted to uh, food, for, food for humans rather than going into ethanol. And indeed, the marketplace would see to it. Right now, uh, corn is roughly 10 cents a pound, uh, which is getting to the point where it's pretty expensive to, uh, to produce into uh, transportation fuel unless there's a lot of government subsidies. And this is just like money in the bank. And I use the analogy in my book, if a family saves up for a, a family, um, you know, an annual vacation, and all of a sudden the, the, the roof leaks or there's a, there's a big problem in the house, the, the vacation goes away, but the integrity of the, um, of the, uh, of the uh, family finances remain totally intact. So I think it's a very positive thing that there's this uh, kind of a, available quantity of corn to, uh, to, to feed the world should the need arise. We've been talking with Maurice Halatic. He is the author of his book, Demystifying Food from Farm to Fork. Maurice, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available on the iUniverse um, website. It's also available on the Amazon website. And indeed, if you go to any small bookstore, or large bookstore for that matter, and just quote the title of the book, they can, they can order it for you. Thank you, Maurice, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Steve, I've really enjoyed the chat. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle. And sidekick Nina Fry. Every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 Central on toginet.com. You simply the best. Better than all the rest. Donna is a charismatic market driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introinc.com. Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Evermore. People have the means to live, but no meaning to live for. These are the words of Dr. Viktor Frankl, the inspiration for the movie Victor and I. That's V-I-K-T-O-R and I, movie.com. And TalkSense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with host Mary Similuka and frequent contributor Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. More and more people today are discarding their quest for money, possessions, and things, and are instead beginning a serious quest to find meaning in life. Until now, these discussions were historically in the hands of priests, ministers, and scribes, then to philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists. Now, these deep discussions are where they should be, in the hands of individuals, on the air, with you. Talk Sense Radio, The Meaning Connection, with your host, Mary Similuka, and frequent contributor, Alexander Vesley. Friday afternoons at 3, 2 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Back Up on Skis, My Journey Back to Ski Racing, the true story of Aubrey Mindock. And we're very honored to have Aubrey with us right now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Aubrey. Hello. Well, you've been through it. Here you are, 24 years of age, and you almost died twice, uh, you know, ski racing. Let me just 
read a little bit about your life just to kind of set the stage for our discussion. We'll go into the details. You've been involved in, with skiing all your life. Uh, your parents got you involved in ski competitions at a young age, and and you were even uh, right away you're thinking about trying out for the Olympics when all of a sudden at the age of 15 you took one fall that almost killed you and then rebounded from that one and then when you were 19 another accident where you literally I guess were clinically dead you know they revived you and here you are after all of that after a possible broken neck a fractured skull broken knee and a arm that was uh, really hurt uh, you found your strength and was able to race once again, and now you're off to the Olympic trials. Aubrey, my goodness, uh, you're too young to have all this happen to you. <laughs> How you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, I guess I'm. <laughs> I was pretty young when all of that happened, but so much came out of it. So much good. So I wouldn't want to take any of it back. Well, we learn from our experiences, or well, at least hopefully we learn. Some people don't, but here you are, 24 years of age now. And as you look back on that first accident, 15 years young, how did you deal with it? Let, tell us a little bit about that accident. Okay, well, my brother Austin and I, we were racing down the mountain in Breckenridge, and it was getting close to the end of the day. Um, it was Probably we got off the chairlift at about 3.55. The lifts close at 4, so we needed to be at the base of the mountain by 4. And um, we were just like, let's do it. Let's race. And Austin and I are very competitive, so, of course, I wanted to beat him. And I remember as I was getting closer to the um, bottom of the mountain, I was definitely far ahead of Austin, and I, as I was coming up from my tuck, I remember I caught an edge and basically just kind of threw me in the air, and I, yeah, it was kind of a tough fall. I kind of tumbled around a little bit, and then I stopped breathing and um, basically had to save myself because there was really nobody around to help me after the fall. Well, obviously, you were able to pull yourself uh, out of that. Was it a, a, quite a rehab? Um, I had definitely had a lot of rehab with it. Um, I fell in April, and then it took all summer, probably until, I think, October, November, around Thanksgiving, until I was done with my rehab. Now, uh, what had to heal? What what happened? Um. I had surgery on my knee. I tore my ACL, LCL, MCL, meniscus, um, had a tiny fracture in my knee, broke some ribs, and bruised up my lung really bad um, to the point where I pretty much stopped breathing and I had blood coming out of it. Now you've so clocked your... internal bleeding. Internal bleeding as well. Now you've clocked yourself at 70, 72 miles per hour. Uh, that's uh, obviously difficult for most of us to understand why you'd want to go that fast down the mountain, but uh, that's what you do. That's what you love to do. Well, by the time you're 19, now you're in college, and you're, are you on a college uh, ski team? I am. Um, I got back up into the Olympic training um, when I was 16 years old, so about um, a few months after my accident, and then I trained really hard. I skied my way to Fort Lewis College, and it was the second race of the season. So I was already on my way to nationals. I had won my first race and did really well in all of my other little races. I mean, it was like the second major race of the season. And, um, yeah, it was looking really good when I fell. Now, this fall, uh, literally, you were clinically dead. Um, pretty much. I don't really remember anything, so it's difficult for me to talk about it because of um, the loss of memory. But all I remember about that was going to heaven. So... Yeah, I was pretty much dead. So you had this spiritual experience. Uh, who did you see? 
I saw my grandfather who had died several months before. And did you, from that experience, did you know you were coming back? Did you know you you were, you know, you weren't going to die? Um, well, when I was in heaven, I remember I had a choice of whether or not to die or whether or not to stay there. And um, I actually made the decision to stay there and not come back. And then I remember I heard my mom's voice and then everything went black and I came back. So your mom's voice, uh, for some reason, just uh, brought you back. Uh, that's what moms do, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here you are uh, with all these experiences, and I guess definitely as we're, the reason we're talking, you're now an author. Uh, why did you want to write all of this? Um, I decided to share my story because I want to inspire people who hear it um, to go for their dreams and never give up. It could have been very easy for me to say, I'm done with skiing, I'm never going to ski again, never going to go to, to the Olympics. But I decided to make that choice to get back up, and um, a lot of really good things have happened because of it, so I just wanted to share with people that, um, I mean, everybody, they go through a hard time. Nobody's lives are easy, and that you just have to pick yourself up and move back on, and I want to show people that it is completely possible to do so. So God gave you a second chance. Yes, I'd say a third. A third. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that would be the third. And, and uh, as you put it, you, he wants you to reach out to others, and so... Uh, this book is, uh, I guess, a beginning of that. Um, yes, I would say it is. And tell us about 50% of all book sales. What What's that about? Um, I am donating 50% of my book sale profit to schools for better education programs. I'm going to be starting off with Denver Public Schools because they have no money, and um, it's um, the dropout rate is over 60%, so I wanted to donate 50% of my income to one school around each country if possible, or each state or if possible. Now, it's easy to quit. A lot of people, bad things happened, and, you know, they feel sorry for themselves. They get depressed. Uh, why didn't that happen to you? Um, I don't really know why I didn't get depressed. I, I mean, I went through some difficult times and questions like what's going to happen now, but I never really thought why me, and I can't really answer that because I don't know. I guess it's because of my parents who have always taught me that no matter what, um, everything will be okay, and that God always has a plan, and um, that God will always use the bad for good. So I guess my faith just kept me going. Now, your book also has a journal in your book. Why, why did you put a journal in the book? I guess some blank pages for people to write in? Um, I have a journal because um, people who read my book book, they might want to reflect on their lives, too, and um, maybe um, write about some of the stuff that they have been through. So I want it to be about the reader as well, because everybody has a story to share. And to share, write down their dreams as well. Write down their dreams, write down their experiences, um, write down good things and bad things that have happened and what they've learned from it. And um, just maybe seeing if maybe they can come up with other dreams or um, if any good has come out of their bad situations. You were a ski instructor this past season? Yes, I was. That was a great experience for you. That was a blast. I got to ski every day. And you found out that you have a gift of teaching. Yes, that was something that came out of the bad. I found out that I 
Um, another way to give back is to teach people about skiing. And as you, uh, I guess, I guess you can remember all the way back, very, very young, you've already mentioned this, but uh, you say your parents taught you to ski at the age of two, and and from then on, uh, you've always been a skier. Mm-hmm, yes. Okay, now the future. What is the future hold for Aubrey? Um, I don't really know what my future holds for me. Um, I do know that God has a plan and that He's going to guide me in the right direction. But as of now, I am training for the um, 2014 Olympics in skiing. And um, I am also I'm still teaching skiing. So I do private lessons and stuff. Um, so I'm just hoping that something good will keep coming out of this book and that I'm going to just be able to keep on living my life and making all of my dreams come true. And when you say you're training, uh, what kind of a commitment is that? It's a daily commitment. Um, Every day I have to obviously watch what I eat, and I have a personal trainer that I work out with three to four days a week, and then the rest of the days I do stuff on my own. And then, of course, ski training on the mountain. Now, do you, do you, um, I, I guess what, what I'm trying to understand is folks like you that are so driven, what, what is it do you think that others can learn from about this drive? Because everyone has dreams, but boy, it takes a, a lot of work, doesn't it? It takes a lot of effort to, to uh, fulfill your dreams does take a lot of work and effort, but if you want something bad enough, um, you can have it and nothing will be able to stop you. Um, People who know my story or who read about it, they just need to realize that um, they don't, like nobody should, nothing should stop them from succeeding. And life often is filled with pain, and sometimes it may be physical pain or emotional pain. or uh, You know, it could be a lot of different aspects of pain, but as you have proven, even with the pain, you need to get beyond the pain and still move on. Yes, because pain is a part of life, and if you can't get past it, then you can't live your life. That seems to be hard in today's society. There's so many people that... Uh, Seems like anyway that you know young people are struggling of uh, school, work, uh, people of all ages. But really, your story is an example that no matter the pain, no matter the obstacles, no matter the challenges, you still go for it. Exactly, and there's always going to be challenges. I mean, I still have challenges to this day with training and not knowing if I am good enough, having to really work hard at it, especially now that um, I have a head injury. I mean, my one more head injury, and that could be the end of me, who knows? I mean, I fractured my skull. So I have to be extremely careful, and that's tough. So you just have to work through it and get, take it day by day. Day-by-day day process. Uh, Aubrey, uh, we congratulate you. Uh, incredible Incredible, uh, obviously, example of determination, overcoming the odds, uh, just going for everything. I mean, you know, go for the gusto, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So tell us, Aubrey, how do we get your book? You can buy the book through iUniverse, or you can go to Barnes & Noble and buy it there, or Amazon. You can also find my books through my website. I do have book signings coming up. So go ahead and check out. It's www.aubreymindock.blog.com. And look for my book signing events coming up there. And Aubrey Mindock, I'll spell that A-U-B-R-I-E-M-I-N-D. O-C-K, Aubrey Mindock. Well, we've been talking with Aubrey Mindock. She is the author of her book,
Back up on skis, my journey back to ski racing, uh, her true story. And we appreciate you, Aubrey, for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you for having me. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. How to invest, where to invest, where to save, where to get the right insurance, what to do about taxes. Should I relocate my business or ever purchase a property? That's where Go To My Radio Show comes in. Join host Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Choose the right financial professional and learn more about the products and services while learning the terminology and strategies used by these professionals. Go to my radio show is unbiased and Chris Holt, your host, will ask the hard questions and take calls to help you connect with the right professional who can help you better handle your financial and business choices. Go to my radio show is not a financial services company and does not offer any financial advice, but we will help you make the right choice when it comes to planning your financial future. And most of all, choosing the right program and the right professional for you. Go to my radio show with Chris Holt Tuesday afternoons at 1 Pacific, 3 Central on GoToMyRadioShow.com. Hey moms, juggle your hats with our mom of many hats, Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the mom to mom Network. Moms are always juggling their hats. And sometimes it's easy for moms to forget their value when life calls for switching from role to role. But the ability to juggle so many hats is priceless. She is never just a mom. She's a decision maker, coordinator, creative genius, counselor, a friend, an authority, and a leader in her household. On Mom of Many Hats Radio, we'll be talking about the hats that you as a mom juggle. We'll acknowledge your importance and support in helping you and all moms to not just defend your value, but to believe in your value. For more on the show and Angie, check out her website, azmamaminihats.com. She is a strong woman. She is powerful. She is wonderful. And she is valuable. Mom of Many Hats with Angie Mazzillo. Friday afternoons at 5 Eastern, 4 Central on the Mom to Mom Network. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Angelica's Discoveries, Romance and Journey to the New World, and the author is Atilia Greco, and Atilia joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Atilia. Oh, hello, Steve. Well, great to have you with us. We're going to talk about this family mystery adventure, Angelica's Discoveries. Let me read a little bit about your book so everyone can understand exactly what we're going to talk about. You say this, high in the Swiss Alps, in a quaint village far away from the chaos and destruction of World War II, Angelica leads an idyllic childhood haunted by only one thing, her fear of the water. But Angelica develops into a strong, independent woman. Her desire to travel becomes overpowering, and she vows to overcome her paralyzing fear one day, now the chance has come. So this is a book about conquering one's fear, as you say it, and of course this immigration uh, story, adventure story to the United States in the 1970s. Uh, what was the motivation to write your book? Well, the motivation was that uh, there is a lot of um, things happening in life, and sometimes you have a dream as a child, and if you have uh, real dreams and you uh, start to think about it and then you set the goal and then you have to go step by step and uh, over an extended time of your life, maybe you can realize your idea or, or your wish to travel. That's what uh, I thought it was very important that people, anyone can do that. So growing up high in the Swiss Alps, uh, is this part of the story? Do we learn about this idyllic childhood that Angelica experienced? Yes, we do. We, we hear how she lives in the high mountains and is surrounded by, by deers uh, who uh, follow her to school. And uh, they live out near the woods, so far even from a village. So there is a really idyllic uh, way for a child to grow up with nature. 
But a cat, but of course, as every child grows into becoming a teenager, an adult, there's always that desire to, you know, flap the wings and uh, fly into the unknown often, right? Exactly. And so because Angelica's father was telling her a lot of stories about the Greek mythology and about he had a lot of friends coming back from like one friend came back from Sumatra and would tell how he would train elephants to work for him. So this uh, just uh, for the child was very important or for the teenager to hear stories like that. And so the wish and the dream grew in Angelica's brain that she wants to explore the world. And she becomes a travel guide? Yes, and then later she goes and uh, makes art studies in the city of Zurich. And uh, she always wants to go abroad, but her parents would not like. Her father always thought, well, she was too young. And even when she was about, I think, about 14, she got a letter from an uncle in United States who told her that when she is a little older, she can come and uh, finish her college studies in United States. So Angelica exclaims and said, wow, that's exactly what I want. And soon enough, the father said, that's no way. You cannot leave home. You're much too young. You cannot go on the other side of the ocean. And, of course, this was not, say, a handicap for her because in her brain she knew Uncle Victor lives in Cincinnati and one day I will go there. Why does she fear the water so much? Well, this is something she doesn't really know uh, because I, in the high Alps there are a lot of lakes, they are cold, and you don't go swimming and either you don't see boats. So she has never understood why she was very terrified of boats. And whenever she saw a boat, she or she had nightmares about boats who would sink or that stuff, she doesn't know why this happened. So... Um, when she then grew older and wanted to go to Greece as a travel guide after art school, um, she thinks, well, what can I do? I have to go either by boat or I cannot uh, fulfill my wish to visit Greece. So finally, she decides, Angelica decides, that uh, there is one thing she could make, maybe just have her biggest wish, or the greatest wish she has, to wish. Uh, how do you say, adapted with the worst fear she has. So she needs to go by boat to Greece. But she wants to go to Greece, so she has to board a boat. Now, but this, that's, it's kind of a, of a dilemma. Yes, a great dilemma for her. But somehow she uh, goes on a boat with a very special captain, Yeah, and then finally she signs up to be a travel guide in Greece, and here suddenly she sits in Italy where the the Greek boat uh, will take a group of 20 people where she's the travel guide, and she has a lot of responsibility, and she realizes that, my God, what am I doing? I I have a group, and I cannot show my fear, and I want to go to Greece, and so she boards the boat, and her group is now... Uh, having dinner, and she cannot eat. She feels very uh, upset. So she started railing and thinks, "What? why did I ever put my biggest wish with my bigger fear together? And then suddenly this old, unshaved sea captain, Angelis, who all the other person on board try to avoid him because he's introverted, he's almost the eremite, and he's very harsh. But Angelica suddenly feels his hand on, on her shoulder, and then he says, well, Angelica, why? No, she doesn't know her, her name right now. So she feels the hand on the shoulder and says, uh, girl, you must be very terrified of the water because I see that you are afraid. And she said, no, I'm not. And he said, you don't need to lie because I can see it. And finally, Angelis becomes her best friend because he will tell her and show her how to overcome her fear and overcome uh, her biggest trauma. 
And, of course, they have no idea of an unexpected adventure that awaits them in the unpredictable Mediterranean Sea. We don't need to go into all the details, but can you give us a little glimpse of that? Well, anyway, they have no idea what happens, but suddenly, uh, to be short, they, a big tsunami wave hits the boat, and they have to, Angelix is the only one who knows how to cross that big wave, and he saves the whole boat and this whole crew. I mean, this gives then Angelic a lot of uh, confidence that Angelis can do everything and anything. And the one thing is why Angelic becomes at that point almost her guardian angel. And nobody can understand why Angelica and Angelis have almost the same name and how they relate to each other. So... Nobody knows who is finally Angelis. Well, and you talk in your book about one of the uh, of reasons you wrote your book, realizing the meaning of coincidences. Now, can you tell us a little bit more about your feeling about that? Yeah, I think uh, Angelica had a lot of coincidence what happened. First of all, why did she meet Angelis on the boat? Why was he here to help her? like a guardian angel, to overcome her fear of the water. And in the whole life Angelica goes, there is one coincidence which follows the next. But she is listening to it, and she listens to her intuition that there is something maybe who will uh, clarify things she always wanted to know. And while she is uh, following her intuitions, she is open to every new adventure. Then, of course, a great adventure coming to America. Yeah, after she has uh, worked in Greece as a travel guide, uh, well, she meets a Greek man, but she realized that's not for her. But later, she, uh, her heart lies with someone else. And when she marries Mark, his first thing is that he wants to immigrate to the United States. And how? By both. Oh, my goodness. Again, Angelica has to face that she has to travel for six days on the open ocean. And she's really worried about, because now she's with her small family, and she's worried how she would do that. And why she's worried, she feels that she knows Angelica has died in the meanwhile. She feels again Angelica's hand on her shoulder, and she knows, okay, when he's here, I have to just to trust. And one of, just to trust people, that's it. Right. Trust people, uh, value your friends and family, face your fears. You have these messages, these themes. Uh, and talk a little bit more about searching for the positive in any situation. Well, the, even the positive situation after she boards that boat, which was the boat France, to go to New York, the... Five hours later, the captain of the boat invites them for dinner at their, at, in his uh, suite. And why this happens? I mean, that's absolutely coincidence. But Angelica refers that must certainly be because Angelix, the old sea captain in Greece, wants her now to know the captain of this boat. And that means so she can trust that man. So that's a coincidence. Right, another coincidence. And now, the, you, this, there's a theme here in your book about unlocking a family mystery. You don't have to completely tell us everything, but what is going on there? Well, when she was still a child, another story her father told her is was the how his grandfather met his grandmother, and that had to do with a golden hand holding a diamond, which was a typing. So. This was another thing Angelica always wanted to know. There must be a mystery behind that. Why was this so important to her grandfather? Finally, after years, she inherits that hand from uh, her father's aunt who had inherited it, and she gives it to Angelica. And finally, she realized that this hand needs a lot. She, everybody in the family believed that this hand brings some luck to someone. And wearing that hand, she meets 
finally her uncle Victor she wanted to meet when she was 16. And he recognized that hand and said, oh, now I know you are wording that hand. That means that hand has a meaning it should keep the family together. So she didn't know that mystery when she was a child. So she found out what happens. And so another coincidence happened that uh, he tells why her grandfather became, uh, received this hand from his sister. And this reveals then a whole story of the family. A part of the family was lost due to a family fit. And finally, she can, at the end of the book, the whole family is reunited again after two generations after they had a fight. Well, you've uh, really pointed out one of the things that you want readers to learn from your book, uh, to believe and trust in one's own power. So there's a great example of that in Angelica. Yes, and I think Angelica... I think what Angelica thinks is life is interesting and challenging, and there are so many coincidences that I have should, that I should be aware of, and I also want to find out some mysteria in a family nobody knew. That was Angelica's uh, point of view. Well, your five key messages in your book: search for the positive in any situation respect others people's way of life, face fears, value your friends and family, and be thankful. Yes. Well, because sometimes, uh, you, you know, more, more or less we all do that. When we see somebody, we judge. And I think that's very wrong. Uh, people should just be taken as they are. And if, if uh, Angelica sees someone, she just accepts them without prejudice. And this leads her to incredible surprises. The title of the book, Angelica's Discoveries, Romance, and Journey to the New World. We've been talking to the author, Atilia Greco. Atilia, tell us how to get your book. Well, our, my book is available by iUniverse.com, and it's available at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. And you can order it at your bookseller. Well, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Well, thank you, Steve. That was very interesting. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.